0: Welcome to the Modern Hippie Podcast, where we'll be exploring all of my favorite boundary-pushing people and topics surrounding consciousness, psychedelics, mental performance, functional medicine, living in alignment, and so much more. I'm your host, Barrett Perlman, a former pro-wakeboarder turned body worker, energy healer, and, well, a modern hippie. And I'm so glad you're here. Are you struggling to integrate your plant medicine or psychedelic experiences? Do you feel alone in your journey towards healing and self-discovery? It's time to discover the sacred integration tribe. Our online membership community is dedicated to bringing people together to share their experiences and support one another on their healing journey. With access to a wide range of resources, including weekly expert guidance on live integration calls with me, Barrett Perlman, guest hosts, integration materials released monthly, and heart centered peer support, you can finally find the tribe you've been searching for. Join Sacred Integration Tribe today at www.sacredintegrationtribe.com and discover the power of community on your path towards healing and personal growth. Again, that's tribe.com. Welcome back to the Modern Hippie Podcast. I am joined today by my dear friend, Steph Schult, who is a seven-time world record-holding spearfisher, freediver and freediving instructor trainer, and captain, owner, and guide of the magical sailboat, Sail Levy. Thank you so much for joining me today, Steph.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: So some fun facts about Steph. Um, she and I, were we went to high school together. And then we also roomed together our first year in college, and so we know each other pretty well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Very well, I'd say. Yeah.
0: Yes. And what I love so much about you and your story is that you started going down this – you went down this like real straight arrow path of wanting to be a veterinarian and then kind of pivoting and going into business school and becoming a boss-ass babe at business, getting your (laughs) master's in business. And then – You eventually um, got married, got divorced, and sold everything. I believe you sold everything now and bought this catamaran sailboat, Mm 40-foot catamaran sailboat that you are living on and sailing on in the Bahamas and soon to be around the world. Yep. Wow. (laughs) So... (laughs) There's so many things that I know and love about your story that I'm hoping you'll share with us today. Which, um, what made you go from having from being a boss at business to living on a sailboat? Can you connect that those dots with that story for us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because it is, I mean, if you're looking at a spectrum, right? It's polar opposites. I went from doing my hair and makeup every day, focus very much into the consumerism mindset of uh, keeping up with the Joneses, having the nice car, the nice watch, the nice shoes, the nice clothes, having the gym membership, going to get your nails done, your hair done, um, making sure that you show up and you work more than everybody else, harder than everybody else. You're fighting for that next promotion, that next paycheck. You want that corner office. And I think what ended up happening was I was able to achieve that corner office at the age of 28. I was the vice president of a company and society tells you that's when you've achieved success is when you're the vice president and you have all of these things, these material things, and you're able to basically do whatever you want when you want to have no monetary constraints at all, no financial burden at all. And, uh, And I got there and it was like, okay, this is it. Like, this is what everybody talks about. This is this is how we define success as a society. I'm working fourteen to sixteen hours a day. I have all of these things, but my life requires me to make so much money in order to maintain the life that I've created for myself because everything costs so much money. And I grew up on the water. I grew up on boats, fishing, snorkeling. And it was always a dream of mine to just buy a sailboat and Sail into the sunset and never return and not have to worry about any of the stresses of land, never have to worry about sitting in traffic on I 95 ever again. And at the time, um, you mentioned, yeah, I had gotten married, divorced, and um, I started, I changed jobs where I was working from home, I was working remotely. I had time to start scuba diving again. I got my freediving certification, I started traveling to freedive and spearfish. And the more I traveled to free dive and spearfish, the more I realized those were the moments I was happiest. And so at the time, I had started doing a lot of journaling. And they say, write down, because I had been through a really hard time, you know, my whole life history, but I'd been through a really hard time. And I was trying to find happiness, I was at a really dark point in my life, I was not happy. I was like the skeleton of a person, I didn't know who I was. And so I started journaling what made me happy what didn't make me happy, and how could I recreate the moments that were making me happy, who I was around, what I was doing, what I heard, what I smelled, what I was eating. And I wanted to create those moments. And the common denominator for me was the ocean. Just anytime I was around the ocean, I happened to be around amazing humans. I loved the smell of it. I love the sight of it. I love the sound of it. Everything about it made me happy. And Um, nothing else made me feel that way. And so I said, you know, I, I want this as my life. So let me figure out how to do that. And I did, I became a free dive instructor, quit my job, bought the boat and, uh, sailed into the sunset with high hopes that it'd work out.
0: (laughs) Well, and I, you did this also right before COVID. Yeah. And I remember. Yeah. COVID (laughs) was not a thing yet. (laughs) And uh, if I recall correctly, you know, you were, your ambitions were to sit, get on the sailboat, and then also start bringing people on board. And like right when you were set up to do that, it was like, boom, COVID hit. And yeah. so, how did you get through the beginning parts of COVID?
1: Yeah, that was, that was definitely a challenge. Luckily, I don't read too much into things like that. Otherwise, I might have just turned around and sailed back and sold the boat. <laughs> but um, but I didn't. I, uh, I used it as an opportunity. I was locked down in the remote Bahamas. The borders were closed. Nobody was able to come in. I couldn't do any business. I couldn't make any money. And I was sitting there with a depreciating asset and everything was breaking on it. And I used it as an opportunity to learn my boat, to intimately learn my boat, to learn how to fix things, how to maintenance things, how to change them for my liking. I also put together a lot of business strategy, started focusing on social media as a way of of marketing what I hopefully would eventually be able to offer. So when the borders opened back up, so many people were eager to travel. I had a waiting list of people who wanted to come on board. So I was very fortunate because thanks – to working in business for 10 years, I had a nice little nest egg in my bank account saved up from the 10 years of working really hard climbing the corporate ladder. And I had to utilize most of that nest egg in order to stay afloat, literally physically for the first couple of years. And just like any business, year one, two, three in any business is gonna be super challenging. If you do survive, you're not gonna be profitable most of the time. So I, I came from a business background, I knew that that was the case. So I didn't have unrealistic expectations of making millions of dollars by (laughs) leaving corporate and buying a boat. Uh, But I would say my strength was just my patience. I, I believed so much in what I was doing, and that I was at the right place, and that it was going to be the right move for me and that I had found what I was supposed to be doing with my life. And I was just patient, Uh, put the money in where it needed to be to make the boat safe and functioning. And then six months later, borders opened. I was able to do a couple trips and then they closed again for a couple months and then they reopened and things took off and it still wasn't easy, but um, it was enough to make ends meet.
0: Mm. I mean, what a powerful journey, and I'm so glad that you didn't go back because I believe I was one of the first rounds of people that came to visit you on your boat uh, once the borders open, and I snuck into the Bahamas in July of 2020 in like a two-week window where they opened their borders.
1: That's right. (laughs) I remember that.
0: And I had gone to Florida, and we were supposed to have – I think it was my grandpa's funeral. and Or no, it was his birthday. Sorry. He hadn't died yet. Shame on me. Um, It was his 90th birthday, but they decided against it because it was COVID. And so I had like five days or you were like, can you come early by chance? And we didn't know the borders were going to close again. So I had magically just planned to come earlier. And like the day before my flight, they were like, we're closing the borders again. And so um, it was a It was a fun time to come and join you. Yeah, you're like, what if I
1: get stuck here? I'm like, well, (laughs) then you get stuck here. I think there was some sort of like hurricane or something too when you were leaving. There was all kinds of things happening during that time.
0: Yeah, because I had been asking you for months in advance, like, hey, Steph, could we do a crossing from the Bahamas back to our hometown? Because we live, we're from Southern Florida. And you were like, probably not. And (laughs) then sure enough, there was like this hurricane coming the day I was supposed to fly out, and all these people were going to be stuck there. And you didn't want to be in the Bahamas for your first hurricane. (laughs) And so we ended up crossing back over to South Florida. And that was so cool. So cool.
1: That was a very special trip. That was so much fun. You got to dive with sharks for the first time, overcome some fears. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. It was uh, technically my second time. But, okay. <laughs> uh, d- but still, that was a massive – I tell that story a lot because it was still uh, just one of the most powerful moments of my life because you had me jump in the water and there were like 30 fucking sharks in there. And <laughs> I had previously swum with like three and there's something really different about three and 30. and Yeah. And, uh, just, like 10 times. Yeah. Like exponentially, you know, because you want to kind of <laughs> k- keep your eye on them when you're in the water so that no one sneaks up behind you and takes an investigative bite from behind. and
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And, and all of a sudden there were fucking 30 and, uh, I remember I, I was like panicking, I was crying, I was all, all these things. Yeah. And I remember I took a break in the middle of it and came on board and talked to you and you had said to me um, that you apologized and you didn't, under, you didn't understand beforehand that I was actually phobic of sharks. Yeah. And what's the difference between having a fear and a phobia?
1: I I think it's the physiological response that you have. Um, a fear is just being frightened of something, but a phobia is there's not really rationale to it at all. It's not you're fearful because of this. It's a, a physical response that your body goes through um, where it's it's full panic, like you, mm. full panic. There's no there's no thought process. It's I'm gonna die if this happens to me. And yeah, you had a you were you seemed a little bit nervous at first, and then you were calm, cool and collected, you got in the water, everything was okay, you got out and you were just had a very strong emotional response. But I was extremely proud of you and impressed because after a little brief intermission, some breathing exercises, talking through it, we jumped back in together, we dove down together, we had some really great moments. And the second time you came up, it was a much different emotional response. So I'd call that a win.
0: It was a major win. It was amazing. And I'm so grateful to you for having that chat with me and then going back down with me. And you were like, <laughs> I remember you even yep. said to me too, like, I will pay you a million dollars if you manage <laughs> to get bit by a shark today. <laughs> and I was like, That's How true. Steph? All your money's in the boat. Yeah. You're like, well, you don't have it. So
1: I'm not going to try to prove you wrong. <laughs> too funny. funny.
0: You're right. You're such a, a shark master. And and I think I was the last one to get out of the water that day. Like I yeah. ended up just loving it so much. And watching your friend, Andre Musgrove, who is a phenomenal shark master, free diver, underwater videographer, poor guy to the Bahamas. He's always on Shark yeah. Week. Yeah. <laughs> um, watching him go down and dive with them and he would like – flip them over and pet their bellies and kiss them on the head. And they would all come running to him and being like, do me, do me. And I was like, what is going on with these sharks?
1: Yeah. Andre started as a shark diver. That was his first job. So he was in high school. He worked for uh, Stewart's Cove here in the Bahamas. And he was the photographer for the – well, he was a shark feeder and a photographer when he was a child. So he's one with the ocean. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Literally. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so you never. So we grew up in what's called the shark attack capital of the world, and that's that area from Cocoa Beach down to sort of uh, Jupiter, like basically our hometown. And yeah. how did you? You don't think that's a rational fear?
1: <laughs> I I think because I never got into surfing, so it wasn't. I didn't really have the experiences that a lot of the surfers had or the fishermen. I wasn't really fishing either. If anything, I was snorkeling not spearfishing, just snorkeling, and they didn't really want anything to do with me. Um, So I never even knew that was a thing. I was never on my radar at all.
0: Hmm. Well, lucky you. I was so (laughs) scared. And then I had my my roommate out here in Los Angeles. She got bit by a shark down in the Dominican Republic while she was on a shark tour. And so while we were living together, and I must have been about uh, 28 years old or so, when that happened. So wow. yeah, I was just like, not doing sharps, yeah. not interested. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you have to be careful too who you go with the situation you go with. There's a lot of controversy around it. Um, people have different mindsets around it. At the end of the day, I'm first in Foremost, a spearfisher, a spiro a spearfishing woman. And so mm-hmm. I don't want sharks to associate humans with food as being fed because then they're gonna have the reaction that they're gonna come up to us and eat. So when you're on my boat, we just put the we'll put the carcasses of fish into the bait crate and just bring the scent in, but not actually, we don't want them to actually associate us with food. That's when things get a little sure. hairy. Yeah. And the number of people per guy, there's just a lot of different variables. Just do a lot of research, read reviews, (laughs) Mm -hmm. ask about how many incidents they've had.
0: (laughs) Definitely ask how many incidents. Hopefully the answer is it it should be zero if you go It should be zero. Yes, it should be zero. (laughs) Yeah. Because you taught me so much about shark behavior. And I mean, by the end of my trip with you, I was like, so in love with sharks. And it, it just really revolutionized me to be like, we have to save them all. We have to save the ocean. We have to, oh my God, they're just these completely misunderstood creatures. And now and, um, you're
1: surfing in LA, which is terrifying. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so they say. I Huntington, wouldn't do that. <laughs> we have a lot of dolphins in Huntington Beach. Oh, cool. Um, but, but just south of us is um, San Clemente and San Onofre. And that's where a lot of people get bit by tiger sharks and stuff, which going to pass. But you yeah. swim with tiger sharks.
1: Yeah, but that's way less scary because I'm face-to-face with them. So they're getting a good solid look at like this is not a meal. Whereas mm-hmm. like you just have limbs dangling and some splashing at the surface. Eh, no, thanks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not my it thing. Make, it did make me feel better about surfing though. Like if I could see it coming in the water, I would at least think to grab its nose yeah. or to touch touch it in some way, shape, or form, so that it would immediately yeah. be like, wait, that's not what food does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That you can apply that those skills and that knowledge that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I'm still working my way up to swimming with tiger sharks with you.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> magical experience!
0: How, how would you describe that swimming with them? And um,
1: it's so you sense them before you see them they're really slow. typically they're really slow moving and they'll stay just outside where we can see they're, they'll they definitely i would say more kind of like stock their prey in a way like it feels like they're definitely checking you out before they come in Um, and when they come in they don't really mind that you're there they'll just swim straight into you and kind of (laughs) bump you out of the way Um, but it depends it's also regional tiger sharks act differently depending on where you are like for example in the Bahamas there's an area called Tiger Beach they've been doing shark diving there for decades and these sharks are somewhat domesticated, I use that term very loosely, because they're still a wild animal, they can still have a reactive behavior, and we can't determine exactly how they're going to act. But they are conditioned, I guess is a better word to see the humans come in, expect to be fed a treat, and then go about their business. They're not acting agitated. They're not acting opportunistic. They're not, they're not trying to fight over food, because they're just expected that they're going to be given it. So it's a much different Mm -hmm. experience than seeing A tiger shark in a different country or more like in the wild, a different island where they Mm -hmm. haven't done shark diving, where they're not as conditioned, they're going to have different behaviors. Most of the time, the tiger sharks are going to be much more skittish. They're going to be cautious, more afraid of humans. They're not going to come into you like those pictures you see of me like moving the shark Um, They don't typically do that in the wild. Uh, And they can be really curious and they can be really excited about food. So there can be opportunities for them if you have a fish in your hand, for example, to come in with their pectoral fins down, moving quite fast, trying to take advantage of that free meal.
0: Mm. Which is a a scary situation I would imagine to be in as a spearfisher. Like I'm not really into spearfishing, but when I went out, I would go out with you every day while I was on your boat and I would put myself on what we called shark duty because I was there to overcome my fear of sharks and be the person who when someone catches a fish like someone else would go and make sure to try and like fend off the sharks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you did a great job. <laughs> I think you saw me the the first time one shark like kind of came in and like beelined it for us and you had given me a talking to about sharks being like dogs and you were like the same way that you alpha a dog, you alpha a shark. And if a shark is being <laughs> rude, you have to let it know. And yeah. the same way that you would puff up and, and claim your space as an alpha, you do that with a shark. And so- one kind of made a beeline for us and and I turned and looked and I immediately like swam backwards out of every, and I stopped and I was like, shit, I'm supposed to swim at it. Okay. <laughs> Deep breath. And I like swam at it and it was immediately like, whoa, 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 what the fuck is going on? Like, no, no, no. And then it it turned around and swam off. And I was like, it worked.
1: <laughs> I did it. <laughs> I couldn't believe yeah. it worked. Yeah. Making eye contact, <laughs> swimming towards them, just establishing Establishing yourself as dominant, they're they're truly opportunistic, and when you take that opportunity away, they're like, whoa, 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 okay, never mind. <laughs> you win. <laughs> I love that. Yeah.
0: And so, um, you got into free diving. Were you? So I know you were a scuba instructor before, um, and then you got into free diving. What sparked that shift for you?
1: Yeah. So I. I was a dive master for scuba. So I was working on a couple of boats as a dive master, like guiding, but I never was really passionate about becoming a scuba instructor because it was mm. all about how to utilize equipment. So how do you put together your regulator onto your your BCD and attach your tank? And it was all about equipment. And... As a dive master, I realized that a lot of people put on a scuba tank and just turn off their brain. And there's quite a bit of liability as a instructor and a dive master when it comes to scuba diving. Uh, and it was just very cumbersome. The equipment was all very cumbersome and heavy. And I felt very limited in the water. And you're blowing these bubbles and the animals are all scared. And so I took a free diving course initially because my brother-in-law, Jared, we would go out lobstering together I just just free diving. At the time, I didn't know what free diving was. I just called it snorkeling. But I would just dive down, try to get a lobster, tickle it out and net it. And he could stay down three times as long as me. And I was getting really frustrated because I'm somewhat competitive. And I was like, why can you stay down so long? And I'm like, up and down, up and down. And so then I heard about a free diving course. So I took my first course. And um, it did okay. I I wasn't like a prodigy or anything. I mean, I passed the course, and I was like, "Yay!" I held my breath two minutes and dove fifty feet. Uh, success. Um, And then my some of my scuba friends signed me up for an advanced free diving course, and that course blew my mind. I dove past a hundred feet, did a four and a half minute breath hold, and I realized that I could free dive just as deep as I could scuba dive basically. And I didn't have to worry about a surface interval. I didn't have to worry about equipment. I didn't have a lot of the things I disliked about scuba diving were non-existent in free diving. It truly was a freeing feeling where you just grab a mask and fins jump in. You can get closer to the animals. You can go from sunrise to sunset without any sort of intermission. And I was hooked. It was, it was
0: just, I was hooked. Well, and so then you, you were married and mm-hmm. um, for if you don't mind me sharing this, but your marriage was mind. not very happy and healthy yep. and he was um, not very kind to you, which was always devastating to me because I think that you are just the brightest light of a human being that I have ever met in my entire life. Uh, your smile lights up a room, your energy lights up all of the space that you're in. It's completely yeah. undeniable when people are around you. And, um, you're welcome. And you had this husband who treated you horribly, um, at least mentally. Um, and so when that marriage came to an end, um, I love what you've shared with me about how breath discovering your breath and that changed everything for you. So could you share that story with us?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think a lot of, the foundation of our relationship between you and me was founded on our struggle with other relationships. <laughs> yeah. We were both equally pretty awful at finding kind people in our lives. So we just, yeah, trauma loves company, I guess. But um, <laughs> yeah, it that was really challenging for me because it, uh, my ex-husband checked all of the boxes. He was what society tells you you should end up with uh, in a lot of regards. And yeah, he wasn't a very kind person. And it, I had a lot of trauma from that relationship. And going through the divorce was really traumatic. Uh, that entire process was not easy on me because my family's quite religious and divorce just isn't an option. So here I am going against a lot of my family's religious beliefs and people calling me a quitter and saying that when things mm-hmm. got hard I just took the easy way out and you, you don't it's good to share to some extent but some things you you don't need to share and so I was always trying to put him A lot of my relationship, I was putting him on a pedestal to make him seem like an amazing person, because that's what narcissists have you do. And Mm. I also, through our divorce, didn't want to make him look bad. I didn't want people to have a bad image of who he was. And I thought I took a lot of responsibility for it saying, oh, maybe he's not a bad person. Maybe he just really dislikes me. Maybe it's me that's causing the problems. So I thought that it was just his response to me as a person. And that was really challenging. So I would have a lot of moments where I would go into a panic, um, a really strong physiological response. And uh, freediving did help me breathe through those moments where you're focused on your breath. You can lower your heart rate. uh, You can kind of get yourself through those anxiety attacks, and pull yourself into the present and be able to handle those situations in a much more positive way. So I credit freediving to, it was like turning on a light switch for me, and uh, Mm. just showed me kind of a clear direction of what I could have with my life, found who I was again, allowed me to create the best version of myself in a really positive way.
0: Hmm. I'd love that for you. And uh, I became a breathwork facilitator in this last past year. And one of my favorite things is helping people learn the breath. And I'm consistently shocked how many people I teach who haven't been breathing into their bellies their entire Mm. life, taking that deep breath. Not since um, you were a baby. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's, it's pretty crazy. Like if, if your chest rises a lot and your shoulders rise when you're taking in breaths, um, should rethink some things. Get in touch with me. We'll talk.
1: Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, game changing.
0: Yeah, but I love the free diving breath, like the breathe up. What is the pattern on that breath, and why is it so effective for free diving?
1: Yeah. So when we free dive. The focus is to lower your heart rate as much as possible. And what that allows you to do is hold your breath a lot longer and stay under the water for an amount of time that most people don't think is possible. And we can do that. A lot of it is just breath work. It's just focusing on your breath. So what we teach in freediving is a short inhale of about two seconds, like you're sucking in through a straw. Pause for two seconds to stabilize your heart rate. And then a nice, slow, controlled exhale, breathing through your teeth like you're making a noise like a snake, just to minimize the amount of muscles that you're using. And it's a nice, passive exhale um, for anywhere between eight and 10 seconds, whatever comfortable. So, and then two pause, pause for two more seconds, and then inhale for two seconds. So it's just a pause, pause, exhale. pause inhale and you just go through that and it kicks in something called our dive reflex which is a reflex that you're born with as a mammal and it automatically starts lowering your heart rate and preparing you mentally and physically to have a successful dive
0: that's so cool <laughs> And is I'm part already of relaxed. Million- <laughs> I know, I'm relaxed just watching you. <laughs> um, and is part of that reflex also from getting like your face in water? Yeah, that's
1: another thing that kicks it in. So we call them um, triggers, like a way to trigger your mammalian dive reflex. And so you have a lot of receptors on your face that tell your body if you're in air or water. And so by exposing those receptors to water, by putting your face in the water, you're actually telling your body, okay, you're in water you can lower your heart rate, you can start to shift your blood to your vital organs. And the mammalian dive reflex, go ahead and, and Google it. It's, it's quite fascinating what our body's capable of. And something what I love about teaching free diving is that we were born with this reflex that your body has that the majority of the population has never utilized. And it's something you can kick in in minutes. And now you have just unlocked potential and things that you didn't think were possible like holding your breath for four minutes or diving down to a hundred feet.
0: That was one of my favorite things about learning to free dive with you was all of the ways in which our body is prepared to not let us die in water. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I thought for sure, like once you're out of air, you're inhaling that ocean and you're done for, and that's not quite how it works at all. Like what is your body's response to not having enough oxygen?
1: Yeah. It's great too. I've had a lot of surfers reach out and do free diving courses with me because of the, what do you call them? Where you're like held down in the wave?
0: Hold down or something. Surfing? Oh yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Like where you're like hold down for m- multiple waves. Like you've been tumbled and you're held down underwater mm. and multiple waves go by and you're just under there like being tossed. And I've had mm. a number of surfers reach out for courses because they want to learn how to do, how to relax their body and basically do a static, holding their breath as they're being tossed and turned around uh, so that they can survive those, those takedowns.
0: Yeah. It's incredibly helpful and something that I was grateful to draw on for my surfing um, because yeah, there. I mean, here in Huntington beach, I'm not really surfing anything. That's like crazy big, like big waves. (laughs) Yeah. We're like maybe eight feet is what I'll go out in here. Up to, but I mean, (laughs) that's still pretty big, but you can get tumbled and, and you know, you're oftentimes falling and not prepared for it. So you don't get to do a breathe up before you crash, but, um, but having the, the knowledge in my head that on my best day in my best moments, I can hold my breath for three minutes to three and a half minutes. I actually did on land once. Yeah. Um, Yeah is comforting enough to know that I'm only getting tumbled for like 20 to 30 seconds. And I got this. i
1: shall pass. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: Like I'll just be ragdolling and just going, okay, relax though. Just relax. And, wait. <laughs> and yeah. it's so helpful.
1: Yeah. That has more. to be terrifying. Yeah.
0: What are some of the, the symptoms the body will uh, start to exhibit if it's running out of oxygen?
1: Yeah. So, uh, one of the main things that we teach in free diving is the signs and symptoms of hypoxia because every, everybody who hasn't done research into free diving or taking some sort of free diving class associates the urge to breathe those like diaphragmatic contractions, like that with, okay, I'm running out of oxygen. And what's, Crazy about freediving is that urge to breathe is really just your body's intolerance to carbon dioxide. So it's a buildup of CO2 in your system, and it has nothing to do with you actually needing to breathe. It's not actually loss of oxygen at all. So mm. the first signs or the first symptoms what you're going to feel yourself is going to be tingling in your fingers and toes. Um, what you're going to see on somebody the signs is you're going to see their fingernails and their lips are going to start to turn purple. And that's really your first sign that you're hypoxic. And if you're, I mean, obviously, if you're getting tossed and turned in the waves, um, when you're surfing, it's going to be a lot shorter of a time. But when you're in a swimming pool, that typically doesn't happen until about three or four minutes when you first start getting the first signs of hypoxia, being low on oxygen. So our bodies can go way, 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 way further. Our brains are really the biggest uh,
0: limiting factor
1: when it comes to breath hold and freediving.
0: Yeah, no kidding. As in everything. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what makes freediving such a powerful life tool. Like if you can overcome your desire to breathe and mind over body, tell yourself that you have all the oxygen you need and that your body just needs to do what it's told right now. Um, Yeah. Gosh, what an incredible tool for anxiety, for panic, for stressful situations. Yeah. And another thing too about free diving is, um, like, even if you run out of oxygen, and and please correct me where I am wrong, or tell me more, but like your body won't immediately breathe. What does your body do? Yeah,
1: you. um, So the you can have two things happen to you: loss of motor control and then blackout. And loss of motor control is your body is really losing control, so you are stuttered breathing, kind of shaking, convulsing. Um, And what happens prior to this is your spleen actually contracts and your spleen has oxygen rich red blood cells. So it's your body like saying, hey, you got this. And it gives you kind of a shot of oxygen saying you can last a little longer. So typically before somebody has a hypoxic event, they're going to feel fantastic. They're going to have they're going to have a euphoric feeling, like their whole body feels tingly, they feel like a mermaid, they're like, I can stay down here forever. And then you have your loss of water control or your shallow water blackout. And like you said, it's not that you just run out of oxygen and just suck in water. What happens is your body goes into conservation mode. And it's like screensaver mode, like the computer is still (laughs) on and active, it's just not there. And so you go into screensaver mode, you have something called a laryngospasm, where your larynx closes. So you're not actually inhaling any water, and you lose consciousness. So you're just kind of sitting there floating. And this can last your blackout can last anywhere from a couple minutes all the way up to I think the, the longest recorded was 42 minutes they did some sort of documentary about a young boy who fell through the ice, lost consciousness oh, yeah. and was without oxygen for I don't know the exact number of minutes, but it was it was long and um, and then he came to and had a full recovery. And so if the biggest concerning factor is when your body does release that blackout, but your laryngospasm, your your larynx opens back up and you do take what we call terminal gasp. So it's your body's last dish, ditch effort to try to put oxygen into your body. And so when it takes terminal terminal gasp, if that is gasp is of air, then you live. And if that gasp is of water, then you drown. And, uh, and that's the difference. So you're really, that's why when you see in movies, Drowning victims and they do CPR, and then the person comes to and they're like, (laughs) and they like cough up water. um, Mm -hmm. That's because the water was just in their mouth because their larynx closed off. So they're not actually inhaling any water, which is your body's defense to protect itself. Um, If you had inhaled the water, then you would be vomiting, you'd be coughing up bubbly, foamy stuff because it would have been in your lungs. And that's way more Mm -hmm. dangerous than water just in your mouth. So your body goes through a lot of things first to prevent you from blacking out, but then if you do black out to go into conservation mode to make sure you survive it. So key to everything is have a good buddy, make sure they have your back and they know how
0: to save you. Mm, they wonderful safety tips. And yeah. I, I love that. And that gives me so much more confidence being out there in the water to just relax and in those yeah. snorkeling situations and hopefully can inspire some others to do the same. Um. Yeah. I actually saw that movie uh, that was based on the documentary of that boy who got who fell through okay. the ice. Yeah, it was yeah. really powerful and wild and crazy, um, crazy stories. Yeah. Yeah. And so you also um, have been setting world records spearfishing, which I am so proud of you for.
1: Thank you. Never did I think that was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> if anything, you're you're the world record holder of the two of us. You're you're way more badass than I ever ever will be. So,
0: not at all true. Because look <laughs> at you now. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty stoked on it. <laughs> what is your favorite world record that you've set?
1: um so the world records i have are all free diving um spear fishing fish on pole spear so i'm diving down without scuba gear i'm using a pole spear which means it doesn't have any sort of trigger mechanism it's just a rubber band that you pull up the spear let go and shoot the fish and i just set a record I wasn't necessarily going for this fish as a record. I just, this was a bucket list that I wanted to do so badly, which is to shoot a wahoo on a pole spear. Um, Wahoo are very fast, very challenging to hunt, very challenging to get close enough. And then when you shoot them, they have really soft skin. They run like heck. They rip themselves out of shots really Mm. easily. And Even I guess in addition or more importantly, they are so delicious. They're one of my favorite fish to eat and they're super sustainable. So they're abundant in every ocean they exist. Um, There's no sort of like protection needed on them because they're just, they're just a a win, win, win fish all the way around. And Mm. I wanted to shoot Oahu on a pole spirit because it's really been a goal of mine for like four years, five years. Because I didn't know if it was possible, it's really challenging to do. And it was just something that I was like, well, if I can shoot a wahoo on a pole spear, I can kind of do anything on a pole spear. And I traveled over to Fiji to visit Cole, my boyfriend, um, and we went spear fishing there. And I did shoot a wahoo on a pole spear. It was 26.8 pounds. And I set the record for uh, women's wahoo on pole spear, because there's a women's category and a men's, just like every sport um but prior to that I had actually shot a really large one in the Bahamas and I got a good shot on it in the tail and the slip tip um which is part of the pole spear at the end got wrapped around its tail and it ripped itself out of out of the shot so it got away oh. and so even though I shot this one in Panama I knew that I could shoot a bigger one because I had and I knew I could land a bigger one and so when we came back to the Bahamas I invited Cole to come on board with me, and we went to a really remote island in the Bahamas where one of our Bahamian friends invited us. And I ended up landing a an eighty four point six pound wahoo on pole spear, which was holy shit! Yeah, it was the biggest wahoo ever landed on pole spear ever in history, ever recorded. So, and the biggest female record on pole spear. So, um, that was that was just a win 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 fish all the way around.
0: That is so fucking cool. You think I'm a bigger – you're crazy, girl. You're such a fucking badass.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, well, you're pro-wakeboarder, snowboarder, all the things. Like, yeah.
0: (laughs) There's so much to being a badass. And another thing that I think makes you such a badass is how well you know your boat. Like I'm always following your stories on Instagram and you do such an amazing job of taking everyone on this journey with you and you do so much of the work on the boat yourself. Like I know you have those massive times where you take it in and I see your checklist and your spreadsheet of what <laughs> needs to be done and I'm crying for you. <laughs> yeah, it's not cheap. <laughs> yeah, but like what you've learned to do yourself is just I'm so impressed. I'm so proud of you. Oh, How you. did you learn to work on your boat?
1: That it was that was one thing. I did many things very, very wrong, but that was one thing that I I believe I did really right when I bought my boat. Is I didn't know anything about boats. I didn't know how to do anything on engines or electronics or plumbing. I didn't know the difference between a flathead and a Phillips screwdriver, <laughs> or like when to use a screwdriver, when to use a hammer. Like I, I was really <laughs> not like it was like <laughs> it was like I don't know general labor for dummies times like a hundred. <laughs> um, but I, what I did right is kind of a blessing and a curse. I bought my boat. I, needed, I knew it needed a little bit of work. It ended up needing much more work than I thought. And I had mm-hmm. to basically replace all of the guts. Um, and I tried not to replace them. I tried to repair them first and then ended up having to replace them anyway. But I would hire people to teach me how to do things, not just to do them. So I did an entire uh, engine rebuild on both of my engines with my friend Derek. Um, Derek and Laura. They're fantastic humans. And I love them. They, as well. he, they're they're just awesome human beings. And he was so they were both so patient with me and would let me video everything, would let me take notes and everything. I'd call him and I'd say, Hey, can you remind me about this? And um, they really saved the day for me because ultimately my goal is to go sail across the Pacific and go get lost over there. And I realized that I realized early on that I'm I was solo sailing at the time. I need to be dependent only on myself. I can't be relying. It's not like you have a house and your AC breaks and you can just call the the AC repair guy. It doesn't work that way. There are Mm -hmm. no diesel mechanics in the middle of the Pacific. So um, yeah, I just hired people to teach me how to do things and it's total immersion out here and survival mode. So you you learn by necessity because there's not another option. (laughs)
0: Oh god, I can only imagine. And I saw one time you actually had a, a fire on your boat. Yeah. What was that yeah. like?
1: Yeah, there were two incidents where I almost I almost it was more smoke than flame. <laughs> but um <laughs> one of them it was a bad connection with the water maker pump, uh and it just started smoking. And then the other one was a bad connection with the shore power, which is actually really terrifying because shore power you have so many volts of electricity going through there. And with either of them, an electrical fire is, is really terrifying and fires can take down boats within minutes. So we avoided bad situation. Luckily, uh, with the shore power, we had pulled into our marina and the boat next to us, we were just chit chatting. He's like, yeah, I just had to put, I think like $170,000 into my boat for repair after my, um, power cord caught fire and he said make sure you're checking your power cord regularly like this was a major issue for me. Well, it wasn't 3 or 4 days later we took the we unplugged the shore power and I handed Cole the outlet and I was like that feels kind of warm and he looked at it and he noticed and he said holy cow we were moments away from a boat fire and this was a couple of days later. So, it's all about being proactive and not reactive because fires are no joke. I
0: mean mm-hmm.
1: that destroys everything.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, especially if that you're out in the ocean, like what do you do? I, mean, I know you have your dinghy, but you know, also <laughs> Dinghy like, in a, a life
1: great... raft. <laughs> not a great plan B. <laughs> no,
0: no. But what a beautiful synchronicity too of kind of the universe looking out for you where that got on your radar. So as you're looking at it, you're like, wait, that guy just said that story. And
1: yeah. Um, and it wasn't i think it was the next month we were at a different marina um next to our friend uh on his boat and he had been he had pulled in next to us when we had that situation on our boat fast forward a month we're next to him in a different marina and he had the same situation happen so any boat owners out there check your shore power like at least you know every time you plug it in like just take a quick look at the connections cuz ours was actually the the mount on the in the boat so i had to go inside one of the compartments to check the backside of it. And they're just, it's just bad connections at the end of the day. You're on a boat, everything's kind of shaking and moving and waves, and you're, the connections aren't going to be strong all the time. So, big learning lesson. Yeah.
0: And what a wild thing on a boat. Like everything's moving, everything's coming and done all the time, and everything's constantly rusting and eroding.
1: Yeah. So, you take your house and your car, and then you just put them on salt water. <laughs> <laughs> that's what right, I live maybe. with <laughs> yeah genius <laughs> and that's what I live with so this I mean this life definitely isn't for everybody you have to go into it with the mindset of everything's breaking all the time and you just have to learn how to MacGyver and have a really positive attitude about it and just say okay let's add it to the list is that a, a, a today thing or a tomorrow thing or like a next week thing but um you stay busy and it's really fulfilling. I had done a lot of work in business for a long time and nothing is fulfilling as servicing my generator, you know, getting your hands dirty and getting down there and working for something that provides back to you. And uh, Mm. that allows you to continue living your dream. I mean, you're, you're investing in yourself. You're investing in your dream. You're investing in making a difference and your time isn't wasted on, Uh, micromanaging
0: and and mundane tasks. Truth. Yeah. yeah, What a fulfilling. And then you get to catch all your food or much of your food and live on the ocean and swim with the dolphins and swim with the sharks. And what is one of the most magical moments that you recall recently?
1: Um, well, recently, so recently, I had a really interesting experience with a bull shark, we had a pregnant bull shark swimming around us. And we were spear fishing, and we had gotten a couple of fish and just kept she was being very respectful of our space really wasn't causing too many issues wasn't coming in hot or anything. And so I decided to jump in the water, I wanted to do some GoPro video, I wanted to swim with her. And so I jumped in the water just by myself. Um, And I was swimming around. And I kind of created some vibration at the surface, just like a little to get her attention because she was swimming away. And the moment that she heard just that little vibration, she turned 180 degrees and was on the bottom and came straight up at me and Mm -hmm. reviewing the footage. I was looking at it because all I had was I had my boyfriend's mask with his GoPro on it. So I don't have my pole spear. I don't have like a stick with a GoPro. I just have like his mask that I'm holding like this, like filming. And she comes straight up at me, not like pissed off or trying to eat or anything. She Her fins were nice and out, but she was swimming, like really curious, like coming up. And she just came straight into me. And I have his mask with the GoPro and I'm trying not to touch her because bull sharks can be a little feisty. And... She's pregnant and I didn't know how she would respond to my touch. And I also didn't want her to scratch his mask or the GoPro because that was all I had. So I'm like (laughs) trying to like move out of her way without touching her or having her like scratch anything. And she came into me then she went into my fins. And the moment that my fin hit her, she's like, oh, this is not something yummy. And she (laughs) swam away really hard, like dropped her fins, got really scared and like swam away. And then she wouldn't come back in and interact with me um, because I had scared her. And that was a cool experience because it it was unexpected. I just didn't expect her to have such a strong response, a curiosity Mm -hmm. response where she was coming in and then to be... So much up in my business, even though I'm <laughs> making eye contact and looking at her and doing all the things. So that was it was really cool because it showed me, even though I've studied their behaviors for many years, every shark, every situation, um, every condition is going to be different, and a lot of times it's not predictable. So a bit humbling as well.
0: Mm, yeah, what a beautiful moment. Thank you for sharing that story because I just I love that and I love that about the ocean. Like they're all wild creatures and they're all different and there's no way to meet every single one of them and just those the beauty of them
1: yeah just Mm. like humans people ask me all the time like if you're saying sharks aren't man eaters. And why do people get killed by sharks? And I'm like, yeah, well, humans aren't typically, you're not going to find humans just killing humans, but it happens. Like catch somebody Mm -hmm. that's a little bit off or catch somebody on a bad day. Like they're going to be a little crankier, a little more aggressive than normal. And it's the same thing with wild animals.
0: Truth. And so what do you do now? Like, I know you charter your boat, you bring people in for tours, but what's your, what's your official, like how people can Come and live this magical existence with you.
1: Yeah. So, what we've started to focus on now is more of uh, blogging and documenting. Cole's really good at photography and videography. So, we've been doing a lot more videoing. We started, I started my YouTube channel, and the purpose of me starting the YouTube channel is really um, kind of like a like a photo album um, when we're growing Mm. up. Uh, I want to have these memories to look back on, but I also want to use it as a platform to share the experiences with my friends and family and people who wouldn't have the opportunity to experience something like this. So they can, they can see life through my eyes. Um, And just share that part. We're about to start a really fun adventure sailing from the Bahamas to Panama, spending about a year in Central America and then going across the Pacific. So Yeah. I mean, I still do charters, still have people on the boat. We're doing, you know, one or two every couple of months, Um, but really Mm -hmm. focusing more on the YouTube game um, and doing more content creation.
0: Oh, that's phenomenal. And I love to hear that for you because I can only imagine how how taxing, albeit enjoyable, that must have been to always have people in your home to always be cooking for them, to always be like...
1: (laughs) The way I described it, I was just talking to somebody, the way I described it, I said, it's it's so fulfilling. It's such an awesome experience. But imagine somebody comes over to your house and they say, teach me everything you're passionate about all day long. And then they then you do. And then they're like, okay, now I want dinner. And then you cook them dinner and you do the dishes. And then you're like, okay. And then you put them to bed and then they knock on your door and say, hey, what about some toilet paper? And then you give them toilet paper and then you go to bed and then you wake up at sunrise and like they're like, hey how about some coffee now? And then you're making them coffee and they're like, okay, I'm ready for a great day of you sharing your passion with me. And it's like, it's incredible. It really is incredible. It's also, if you do that too much, you're just pouring, pouring, pouring without having time to refill. And that's really challenging from a health perspective, a mental perspective, and also physically on the boat, just um, the use and abuse that goes through with it. So I I don't want to stop doing charters. I definitely want to do them. I just want to be more intentional with who I'm bringing on board, the time periods that I'm bringing them on board, and have other streams of revenue as a way to supplement.
0: Mm, beautiful, and what—that's—that's that's the dream right there of sailing off into yeah. the sunset.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. And so, how did you meet your boyfriend?
1: Yeah, oh, this is a fun story. Um so Cole and I met Cole and I met like almost 5 years ago now and he we one of our mutual friends he had played baseball with him and I had actually lived with him in college and he introduced us via social media. He's like, "Hey, I know he told Cole, I know this girl, she's just getting a free dive in spearfishing. I think you guys would completely hit it off. And so Cole invited me down to Key West to go spearfishing for Wahoo, funny enough. Mm. And I went out spearfishing for Wahoo with him. I didn't land one, (laughs) which he likes to remind me about. But (laughs) um, (laughs) I have improved the world record. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I didn't land one. We dated for a couple of weeks. And he was down in Key West, I was up in um, Palm City at the time. And the timing just wasn't right for me. It was pretty soon after my divorce. And I wasn't eager to rush into any relationship. And I also had a lot of healing to do. And I Mm. wanted to take the time to be selfish. And so I started I said, I shared my dream. I was like, I want to buy a sailboat and sail around the world. He's like, I want to buy a sailboat and sail around the world. And I was like, Oh, that's (laughs) cool. So we stopped talking. Um, we stayed friendly, we stayed in touch, and I ended up buying my boat. And in the meantime, he jumped on one of his friend's sailboats in Tahiti and sailed from Tahiti to Fiji and ended up living on a sailboat for almost two years over in Fiji. So here we are, Mm. he is a captain, a freediving instructor, a spearfishing guide, a professional fisherman, photographer, videographer, and we're living these parallel lives on opposite sides of the world. And We had mutual friends who, so I linked up with them in the Bahamas and we were buddy boating, which means our boats were like next to each other for about seven months in the Bahamas and we were running trips. And I found out that they actually knew Cole from running spearfishing trips in Tonga eight years prior. So before I had ever met Cole, before I'd ever met them, they had already met Cole. So really small world. And we sailed back to Fort Lauderdale together. At the time, Cole was just returning back from Fiji and happened to be driving from Key West up to Jacksonville, Florida for his brother's birthday party. And we were in Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale is a halfway point, And he wanted to surprise our friends, Hilton and Amy. That was his excuse. And so I was like, <laughs> yeah, like, come surprise them. I'm staying with them. You can come stay the night. We're at my friend's condo. It's going to be fun. And we rekindled that night. We just talked about all the things that had happened since the last time we saw each other. And I invited him to come on the boat. Um, so he came on the boat, uh, bought a one way ticket. We celebrated his birthday at Tiger Beach. So he got to have an interaction with the tiger shark for his first time. And we just hit it off. We just hit it off. And it just, everything just flowed very naturally and very quickly, but very naturally.
0: Mm. I fucking love that for you. (laughs) Cause yeah, when I, when I saw you last in person in the summer of 2020, you know, I remember you being like, I don't know how I'm really ever supposed to meet someone because they, they're going to have to want this life. They're going to have to want to live on my sailboat because I own it (laughs) and do all of this all the time. And And it's, um, I
1: mean, it, it gets more challenging for us, right? Like we're in our 30s, we're single women, we have our careers, we have everything kind of set. And so just in general, the pool of available candidates is relatively small compared to when you're in your 20s. But then add to it that I live on a sailboat (laughs) in the Bahamas. (laughs) Like, and, and, and I had dated a couple guys who were really, really attracted to the idea of the package that I came with. Um, Mm. But what I found is when when they came on board to do a trip or when they were just when they came on to test it, it was never their passion. So they were losing their identity just to latch on to hang on to my coattails and just go for the ride. And that's Mm. not attractive. That's, that's not what I want for my partner. I don't want somebody who just becomes completely codependent on me. I need somebody who not only was willing to move on board and share this experience, but I needed somebody where it was their dream as well, independent of mine. And mm. I found it <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> I didn't know it existed, but if I can do it, there's hope for everybody.
0: <laughs> so true. I actually uh, just met my partner and uh, about a month ago, maybe. And we met on Instagram. yeah. And- kind of similar thing where I've, I've started to just be like, God, I'm so far along on this journey and this path that I'm walking. I'm tired of trying to, to pull whoever I'm dating up by their hair to bring them up with yeah. me, yeah reaching at my level. And I guess I just give up, I give up on dating and, um, getting some, some great, this past year really opened my eyes to what was possible. Like I had this incredible partner for a little bit named Nick, who was so healing for me. Um, and we're still good friends to this day, but, uh, yeah, this guy really rose and I have so much respect. I'd been following him for like a year before we even met and connected and, um, I
1: love that for you.
0: Yeah. Thanks. So it's, it's also going at the speed of light quantum dating, which I'm here for. And I think it's really, really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so happy. You're happy. And I'm stoked that you're going to Panama. And I may have to figure out how to come join you somewhere in Central America because I love Central America, South
1: America. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would love for you to come out and our forces combine and do something really offer a really cool program for anybody who's interested. I think there is a lot of potential there.
0: Yes, we will riff more and share it with you guys when we're ready. And how can my <laughs> listeners
1: best keep up with you? Um, best way to follow along would be Instagram and YouTube, which is just freediver stuff. So,
0: pretty simple. Awesome. I will have those all linked up in the show notes. And thank you again so much for joining me today. And I just love continuing watching your journey and encourage everyone else to do the same. It's not only beautiful and aesthetically pleasing, but a delight <laughs> to <laughs> to watch what you go through. <laughs> oh,
1: thanks, ma'am. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and review this podcast wherever you're listening. I'm so grateful to have you on this journey with me. Until next time.